Hi, my name is Autumn and I'm a counselor for Royal Family Kids Camp. When I was six, given my mom's circumstances of being in and out of jail, suffering from drug abuse, postpartum depression, it was ultimately a choice to go to Moose Heart or end up in the foster care system. Besides being really nervous and scared and just like not knowing what to expect, but it was also exciting and kind of like a new chance. So my first like huge experience um, at Royal Family Kids Camp was actually before I even got on the bus. I met another camper who was in my cabin who actually happens to be like my like lifelong best friend. When me and Alexis first came to camp, we were very similar in the sense that like we were both the first sibling who had younger brothers, didn't have the best family life. I think Juliana was not only like a camp counselor, but also kind of like a bigger sister to us in a sense. She was a good role model, like somebody that we looked up to, that we could have fun with, that we could talk to. The most important part of camp that really stuck with me as I was a kid was just like noticing like that the same people showed up every single summer to serve God, but to also be there for kids that are in need and can really use like a week of fun and love. Over the years of attending Royal Family, like obviously there was a really big sense of family, community, and friendship, but it also made like going to church and learning about God like a fun thing. Royal Family made it interactive and made it feel special in the sense that like teaching children that they're royal and that they have meaning and value at a young age I think is really important and meaningful. Filling that gap in between camp, you know, waiting until the next summer, Juliana and I would write letters, she would send me Christmas cards and that was something that I think really like strengthened our relationship and you know let me know as a child like oh this isn't just my counselor at camp like this is someone that cares about me and loves me year-round just like you know god would do or a family does you know like your love doesn't just stop Hello. i've always thought that you were special and you always held like a very deeply special place in my heart and only getting to see you once a year i you know wanted you to have something to that you could look back on all year and like know that you are always gonna be on my mind, you're always gonna be part of my life and my thoughts and my prayers. My dearest autumn without an end one. <laughs> I didn't put an end. Wow. If there's ever a time I can't be with you, never forget how much you how much I love and care about you. You're a beautiful young woman who's fully captured my heart. You're on my mind every day. You never leave my heart and I have your Italian bracelet with me as a reminder. No matter what, I'll always see you again. You're so wonderful. Everybody in my life knows about you because you have such an impact on me. Well, awesome, love you forever, your sister Juliana. I think volunteers for Royal Family Kids Camp, especially the counselors, you know, the impact that they have on the campers that they might not necessarily realize is really big. 
I decided to come back and be a counselor because again, I know how much impact it had on me as a child. It really is like a family. Like there's people that have been there for years and years. There's people that are just starting. So it's really cool to come back to the same people who are there for the kids, but also for God because they know that there's a reason why they're being called to come back every year and volunteer. This summer will mark the 20th year that uh, Chapel Street has partnered and sponsored a Royal Family Kids Camp. And perhaps God's moving in your heart. You'd like to be part of that. You'd like to know more about that. Maybe even serve this summer. If you're interested at all, just want to find out more about who they are and what they do, caring for kids in the foster care system, you can go right out in the back. You'll see the balloons. The people in purple shirts love to tell you more about what Royal Family Kids Camp does. And they are in the midst of recruiting and training an uh, army of folks from Chapel Street to serve on, with these kids. I hope you caught what was said there. That Juliana to, gave a part of her time to bless this young girl who grew up in a family where she did not know how much she mattered, how valuable she was, that she's made in the image of God and that she has dignity and worth and value. God might use you to do that in some young man or woman's life this summer, and so we encourage you to take part in that if that's something God would lead you to do. It's the perfect lead-in to our... Our topic this morning is we talk about the uh, end of Genesis 1 being made in the image of God. A little confession as a pastor, some, some texts that we're preaching on, I get really excited because I feel like I know this one. I'm excited to preach this one. And other times I, I feel like I'm wholly inadequate to preach this. Today is uh, a little bit of both, quite frankly. I'm excited because it's so profound and important, but I feel quite inadequate to communicate to you just how significant what we're going to cover is. So let's pray and ask God to speak through me and to us. Father God, we're here. We come from different places, different backgrounds. Maybe we had different experiences this week. But we're here. And we're trusting that you brought us here. And you have something to say to us through your word. We, your people, made in your image, redeemed by your son. Trying, though imperfectly, to follow you and surrender ourselves to your authority and to your word. Speak to us now what we need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading to you an excerpt, actually not an excerpt, but the entirety of a letter written in 1 BC from a husband to his wife. man's name is Hilarion. His wife is Alice. Hilarion to Alice, many greetings. Know that I am still in Alexandria. Do not worry for me. I ask you and entreat you to take care of our child. When I receive my pay soon, as I expect, I will send it on to you. If perhaps you bear a child in my absence and it is a male, let it be. If it is female, throw it out. You ask Ephrodosius to tell me, don't forget me, but my love, how could I possibly forget you? Thus, do not worry. 29th year of Caesar, 23rd day of Pawnee. June 23rd, 1 BC on our calendar. Discarding a child at birth. In an otherwise normal letter, somewhat affectionate between husband and wife, he's working in Alexandria. Strikes us as shocking, immoral, illegal. At the time, none of the above. 
quite normal. Clearly, they, in the first century B.C., in the Greco-Roman world, were operating with a different understanding of what it means to be human than we are today. Contrast that with these lines written in 1948 for what we call the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights and are endowed with reason and conscience and should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood and love. I would suggest that Hilarion in the first century would find our universal declaration of human rights as illogical as we find his letter grotesque and shocking. He might say to us, how can you say that all people are, have equal value? Doesn't nature itself clearly demonstrate that people are not equal? Look around you, he might say. There are smarter, stronger people with more capacities. It's just obvious. There are more useful people and therefore more valuable people than others. This is the prevailing worldview in the first century. B.C., A.D., the ancient world. Look at this quote from Aristotle, written in 350 B.C. For that some should rule and others be ruled is something not only necessary but essential to life. From the hour of their birth, some are marked for subjection. Some of you are born to be ruled and slaves. Others of you to rule, and there's everything in between. We find that ridiculous, shocking, but it was the predominant worldview. I share this not to shock you, but to say this is the world in which the Bible speaks with radical difference. We take these things for granted. They're familiar to us, and we almost don't hear them with the impact they had in the ancient world. The Bible repudiated the ancient view of human life it lays down the foundation of human rights and dignity and value that we just assume today. But it was not assumed throughout most of human history. So with that as a backdrop, let's look at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31, the end of chapter 1 in our series, The Gospel in Genesis, the climax of creation, God's creating of men and women. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Though we have disconnected ourselves today in our culture from the source, what we just read is the, is the stream, the, 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 the fountainhead, the source from which our understanding of human rights and dignities flow. 
the German atheist political philosopher Jürgen Habermas, no friend of Christianity or Christian virtues, writes this. The egalitarian universalism from which sprang the ideas of freedom, individual human rights, morality of conscience, and democracy is the direct heir of the Hebraic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. So again, he's, he's not a Christian or even on the side of Christian virtues. But he's acknowledging what we assume to be true about the value of humanity, of human life, we got from the Judeo-Christian tradition, from the scriptures. The imago Dei is the Latin term for this, the image of God. And it would be impossible to overstate its importance. At the beginning of the series, I said we're going to be looking at the foundational stuff from, from Genesis 1 through 3 that, that we need in order to answer the big questions about life. One of those is, who are we? Why do we matter? And this passage is central to understanding the answer to that question. It has psychological implications, social implications, racial implications, gender and sexual and economic and political implications. It should fuel how we think about so many of these issues. I want to walk us through three foundational truths about what it means to be a human being from this passage. I'll just list them and then we'll go through them. To be human means to be designed by God, defined by God, and dignified by God. First, designed by God. Of course, Genesis 1 tells us that all of creation is designed by God. We looked at that last week and the weeks prior. In Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The universe is saying something about a designer. We know that all of creation is saying something about who God is. Romans 1 tells us this. But when we come to the creation of men and women, something different is happening. There's a uniqueness. It's not just we are one more thing in the created order declaring the glory of God. We, have, uh, we would declare his glory and we reflect his image in a unique way, unlike anything else in creation. One of the key ways we see this is in the way that the story unfolds, the way the, the author of Genesis 1 writes, and there's a pattern break. The pattern looks like this. God speaks, let there be, and then that thing comes into existence. Stars, heaven, sun, moon, water, earth, sky. He sees that it's good, pronounces it good. There's evening and morning in the day cycle. This is how it goes. Let there be, and there is. It is good, evening and morning. But when we come to the end of the sixth day, something different happens. Let's look at these passages. You'll see it. God said, let there be light, Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be an expanse. God, Genesis 1.9, God said, let the waters of the heavens be gathered to one place. 1.11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. So we would expect when it comes to men and women, God said, let there be humans. That's not what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Do you see the pattern break at the end of day six? It's like a key change in a song. It's meant for us to, whoa, something different is happening here. God says, let us make. God talks to himself. Never does that before. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Let us make. Who's God talking to? Ancient Hebrew scholars were perplexed by this. There's one God, Yahweh. Who's he talking to? Some have speculated, well, the angels. 
We have no biblical reference that, that the angels are involved in creation, creating anything. Well, some have said, well, maybe other heavenly beings that we don't know about. It seems like an argument from silence. When we come to the New Testament, we see, ah, clearly, that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters before creation, that the Word of God in John 1 is present, the creating agent himself, the Son of God, and Elohim, Yahweh, God the Father, is present. This is one God, three persons, the Trinity. Let us make man different than anything else in our image and after our likeness, he's saying. Not just a command, let there be, but let's, let's make Human beings are the crown and the apex of creation. Last week we ended with Psalm 8 when David looks up at the heavens and the psalmist and he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what am I, what is man and women that you're mindful of us? And then he answers the question later in that psalm. You crowned us with glory and honor, given us dominion, set all things under our feet. This comes at the end of the created order because day seven is the day of rest. We'll get to that next week. For a reason, people, human beings, are the pinnacle of God's creation, reflecting his image in a way that nothing else in all creation does. The Hebrew word for make is the word asa. Remember the beginning, God created, that's the word bara, and it's only ever used of God. But asa is used for us as well, because we make stuff, because we're made in his image, so we're creative. We fashion things, design things, invent things out of the raw material he has made. And he, asa, makes us in his image. The same word, by the way, used in Psalm 139, verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made, asa, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is the same psalm that says, you are what I knit you together in your mother's womb. How many of you like to knit? Anybody? A few? My wife is a knitter. She makes amazing things. Cable knits, sweaters with uh, like different patterns and uh, like mittens and hats and all kinds of stuff. And she made our boys matching roll neck sweaters one year for Easter. And I said, why don't you knit me a sweater? She said, because yarn's expensive. That's too much material. <laughs> she, she didn't say that. <laughs> but this is the image, right? God fashioning you, making you, crafting you unique. You're no accident. You're not the result of random chance. You're not just one in an assembly line of a bunch of human beings. God specifically made you and all of us precious, valuable, unique, reflecting his image. Notice also the absence of a phrase that shows up in every other part of created life. Plants produce after their kinds. Birds produce after their kinds. Fish produce after their kinds. Animals produce after their kinds. God doesn't say that about human beings. There's a sense in which he's saying, you're made after my kind. You reflect my image. You're not just one species evolving in a long chain. You are uniquely made in the image of God. Different. Now, contrast this with the Secular naturalist worldview, which you might not espouse, but it's sort of the air we breathe today. Bertrand Russell wrote, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the ends they were achieving. We are but the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., when he's on the Supreme Court, wrote, I see no reason for attributing to men or women any significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. 
Well, if we are the result of forces which had no prevision of the ends they were achieving, if you are the, the accidental collocation of atoms, then there is no reason for attributing to you or to me or to any of us any value in kind different from a baboon or a grain of sand. How shockingly different is Genesis 1 in this context? In our context? No. You're not the accidental collocation of atoms. You are made in the image of God. Designed by him. And second, defined by him. Defined by God. We live in a time, I think, of cultural identity crisis. As a culture, but also individually. How many of you ever posted anything, a picture of yourself on social media? Anybody? What do we call that? A selfie. You ever take a selfie? You're not to put your hands up. I won't make you put your hands up, but you, you've done it. How have you ever taken more than one because it didn't look right? <laughs> That's terrible. Delete, 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 right? I want to get it just right. Why? I've done it. I'm 53 and I've done that. Why? I want people to see me a certain way. I want them to look at me a certain way. I want them to think of me a certain way. I want to define myself and I want you to define me that way. Most of our culture wars... Political, racial, immigration, sexual, gender, they're really about identity. And we're trying to figure out, by the way, when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, the big question all students were asking and are still asking is, who am I? And by the way, to those of you who are here less than 20 years old, let me give you a little clue about your parents. They're still asking the same question. We're all asking that question. Who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? Why am I here? It's a fundamentally human question. And it's crucial that we hear Genesis 1 speak to it. Sociologists and psychologists today, today will tell you, you're valuable. You matter. Look inside yourself. Find meaning. You're special. To a point, I agree, you are valuable. You do matter. But what's the basis for that? How do you know that? Do you just look in the mirror every morning and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> Try to convince yourself? Or is it coming from somewhere solid that you can trust, that you know is true? It can't be naturalism. The big debate of Genesis 1 is not between creation and evolution. We've said this before. The big debate of Genesis 1 is between creation or accident. Which are you? Which are we? Are you the accidental result of atoms colliding? Or are you designed and defined by a good God who loves you? There's all the difference in the world. It has all the impact in the world for how you live. Look at verses 27 through 28 once more. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Meaning men on their own, women on their own, we together reflect the image of God. God, of course, is beyond gender. He's spirit. But he creates men and women equally reflecting his image and glory in the world. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When God says we're made in his image and after his likeness, this is family language. You say this sort of thing, don't you? 
When you see your nephews and your nieces, you look just like your mama. You look just like your daddy. You're the spitting image. Why do we say spitting, by the way? What does that even mean? I don't know. You look just like your daddy. I don't know what that means. You have your father's eyes, your father's nose. You look like, you look. This is what God is saying. You're my children. You look like me. Not physically. You, res, you reflect who he is, character, his image. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5, this is not in, in, on the screen, but it is in your, who has your Bible? Phones, I guess those kind of count. Turn to Genesis verse, chapter 5. God describes the descendants of Adam. This is the book of Generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image named Seth. Same words. What are we learning there? When God says you're made in his image and likeness, he's saying you're my children. Now, to, to be sure, many of us are wayward children. We, we've gone astray. We've marred the image of our Father. We need desperately to be restored into relationship with our Father, redeemed and, and remade. We'll get to that in Genesis 3 in a couple weeks. But from a creation standpoint, every person you meet bears the image of their creator. We're like mirrors reflecting his image. Some of us are cracked and smudged worse than others, but we all bear his image, every one of us. Now, also God says that the two big questions well, let me, like, uh, uh, that we're asking is identity and purpose. Who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I, what am I meant to be doing? Oprah Winfrey, the great theologian, <laughs> said, you are fulfilling your destiny when you honor the real you. There's truth in that. You are fulfilling your created destiny when you honor the real you. But it begs the question, who's the real you? Who decides? Do you define you? Do you decide and define who you'll be? Or is it revealed to you based on the one who made you in his image? The Bible's answer to who am I is you are made in the image of God. The Bible's answer to what should I be doing is you're meant to know him and to love him and to live out your created purpose in relationship to him. Notice this, this, this blessing. It says here that God blessed them and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the blessing given to fish, to birds, to animals. But it changes. There's something added to it when it comes to human beings. He says, and subdue the earth and have dominion over all creatures. Sounds like, yeah, we're in charge. <laughs> but that's not really what he's saying exactly. The Hebrew word for subdue is the word kavash. It means to bring under control. The Hebrew word for dominion is the word radah. It means to reign. God is the king of all creation. He reigns over all creation. We reflect his image when we reign like he reigns. Rule over his creation the way he would want us to. Not abusing it. Not selfishly. But creation care is central to what it means to be human. Not just creation care for the environment which is important, we talked about that last week, but creation care for each other. We bear the image of God. The way we treat each other is the way that we have dominion. 
We, we rule God's way. His kingdom is not about power, coercion, but about love and self-sacrifice. To live in harmony with our creator and his creation, reflecting his image in the way we care for the creation and for each other. So he designed us special, unique. He defines the boundaries in which we live. And last, but perhaps most importantly, dignified by God. We are dignified by God. The dignity and sanctity of human life is grounded in the Imago Dei. When we talk about issues like the right to life, the abortion issue, immigration issue, when we talk about sex trafficking, abuse, exploitation, slavery, racism, these fundamentally for the follower of Jesus are not political issues. They're grounded in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Our culture can fight about policies and yell at each other, but we know this stuff goes deeper than that. Remember Hilarion's letter to his wife, Alice? If it is a girl? I won't even repeat it. Do you know that in the ancient world it was common? The practice of infanticide was not unusual by exposure? To leave an unwanted child, inconvenient, economically unsuitable, some deformity, some lack of capacity, wrong gender, whatever. Leave that child out to die by exposure. Sounds horrific to us. It was not unusual. Do you know what Christians were famous for, among other things, in the first, second, and third century AD in the Roman Empire? Rescuing those babies left out. So it might be inconvenient to this family, but this little girl, this little boy, is of infinite value to God and therefore matters to us. At great cost to themselves and ridiculed by the Greco-Roman culture. And by the 4th century in 374 A.D., by imperial decree from the emperor of Rome, got, they got the law changed. That infanticide was illegal just like patricide. You could not kill your children or your parents. Sorry, kids. Right? Sounds, of course, of course to us. But what's fueling this? What's driving this? The doctrine of the image of God. She's precious. He's valuable. From the time of Constantine on, this doctrine of the image of God be began to inform and shape how societies and cultures and nations and governments thought about human rights. The Imago Dei was the driving force behind the abolitionist movement in Great Britain and in the, U in the United States. William Wilberforce, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Newton, Martin Luther King Jr., you name it. The civil rights movement in its founding and its, and its driving force was fueled by a deep conviction that all people are created in the image of God. Perhaps the worst Supreme Court case in U.S. history, the Dred Scott case, some of you will know this case. Dred Scott was the name of a slave living in a free state but tried to sue the U.S. government because he was being put back in slavery and he thought his rights were being violated and they decided against him. Do you know why? Some of you will know this. He was judged to be not fully human. Three-fourths of a human being, therefore could not sue. The rights did not apply to him. A horrific decision. In the dissenting opinion in 1857, Justice John McLean writes, a slave is not mere chattel. He or she bears the impress of their maker and is destined to an eternal existence. 
and of inestimable value. The book I read a couple of years ago because it recommended to me, sometimes people, smart people recommend books to me and I try to read them because I want to feel smart. This book's like 900 pages long. I barely got through it. But there's some really good stuff in it. By Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a Yale professor of ethics and a Christian. He wrote a book called Justice, Rights and Wrongs. And his, his, his premise in the book is this. Is, the, is it possible to come up with a foundation for human rights from a secular worldview without God? And his answer, after 900 pages, is no. It's not. Here's an excerpt. The concept of inherent human rights can only be grounded on religious convictions. It is impossible to develop a secular account of human dignity adequate for grounding human rights. Increasingly today, we don't recognize where these rights come from. We want the kingdom without the king, in other words. Timothy Keller said, when, when you deeply believe in the doctrine of the image of God, the circle of people, those who matter to you and need protection, grows wider and wider and wider. When you cease to believe in the doctrine of the image of God, that circle invariably shrinks. I've told you the story before. My wife and I traveled to England over the summer and visited many, many beautiful churches one of the churches we did not see in London is St. Paul's Cathedral. Someday maybe we'll see that. I've been to Westminster, but not, not St. Paul's. Anybody been to St. Paul's? You've been, you've been incredible. Anybody know the architect of St. Paul's? Christopher Wren. Maybe one of the worst wigs ever if you look him up online. Took 35 years to build, finished in 1710. He was 79 years old when it finished. He, he designed many, many amazing, iconic buildings in, in the UK. But St. Paul's may be the most glorious. You'll see an image of it, of it here, the inside of it. There's a commemorative statue and plaque to Christopher Wren in the corner of St. Paul's. And it says uh, in this uh, engraving, it says, If you want to know the true genius of this architect, look around you. Just think about that as it relates to human beings. If you want to know the true genius and glory of God, look around you. I mean it. Actually, look around you. Like, turn your head right now, look around you. <laughs> Think about it. Look at the person next to you. I know it's a little creepy, look behind you, but. In fact, more than that, let's watch this little video together. And as you do, I want you to remember you're looking at the image of God.
I just asked some of our uh, tech folks to call out a few pictures of Chapel Streeters over the years. It wasn't hard. Some of you. And when we think about those that you love most, you would agree, yes, they're precious, they're valuable, they're special, they're made in the image of God. I'm guessing you don't have a hard time agreeing with that. But for some of you, it's harder for you to look in the mirror and believe that. That you matter. That you're made in his image. That you have value and dignity and worth. That he made you. You're no accident. You're not a mistake. That he loves you. That he designed you. And for most of us, if we're honest, I can believe it for other people and I struggle to believe for myself, but where I really struggle is to believe that the person that I can't stand is made in the image of God. That person that just, what is their deal? What is with her or him? (laughs) You're laughing because you know who that is right now. You stop and think about that? They too. God made them and designed them and loves them. As marred as they may be, as marred as you are, they bear his image. Nobody outside the Bible has put this more profoundly than C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. Weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. It means heaviness or weight or significance. This essay is profound. I encourage you to read it in its entirety. I'm going to read a longer section. You'll see what I pick up what's on the screen there. He writes, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. When I first read that, I was deeply convicted because I don't know about you, but I felt as if I could connect with the glory of God easier with a sunrise over the ocean or a mountaintop view or a quiet morning in nature. And I struggled sometimes with people. Do you feel that way ever? Maybe as a pastor, I shouldn't admit that publicly. But Genesis 1, and Lewis is reflecting what Genesis 1 says. Every person you meet seated next to you, behind you, in front of you, those who will cut you off on your way home this afternoon, those who you sit next to at the office, those who have a locker next to yours, those who have cubes next to yours, those who you only see once a year at family gatherings and that's enough. Every person you meet bears the image of God, as do you. 
Now we'll talk about what's gone wrong in our image bearing and how God wants to set that right. Now I don't know where all of you are, but I would guess that some of you need to hear God say, you matter to me, I made you in my image. All of us need to hear God say, they matter to me, I made them in my image. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, when we come to know our maker and our creator through the love of his son Jesus Christ, when we are remade in his image, we begin to reflect his image in a way we could not otherwise. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But we'll save that when we get to that part of the story in Genesis. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the power of your word. And I know that I've only scratched the surface of how profoundly uh, true this is. How desperately we as individuals and as a culture need to understand what it means to be made in your image. How that defines us and dignifies us in a way that nothing else can. Forgive us for doubting what your word says about ourselves. Forgive us for doubting what your word says about others. Help us to see our own lives and the lives of every person we meet as precious to you. Made in your image. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Lord our God, Almighty reigns. To you, brothers and sisters who are made in the image of Almighty God. May the love of God the Father surround you. May the, Holy, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit fill you. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ attend you now and forever. Amen. And go in peace.